This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysu. David Fox, thank you for that great opening. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of DSC's Campfires. Really appreciate being here with you today. I, you know, last week we had an opportunity to uh, answer some questions that uh, kind of been posed to me through oh, through emails and through personal contact and all those kind of things. And had a great response from the uh, questions that we answered. So I thought we might, because of the volume of questions that I get, thought we might just go ahead and do an, uh, another round of those th for this episode. And then maybe next episode, we'll get back into some serious hunting, some serious fishing and, and those kind of things as well too. But uh, thank y'all for joining us today. And, and uh, as I mentioned, we've got a bunch more questions and Again, I'm not going to give you where these people live or their last name. I respect their privacy, but I also truly respect and appreciate the fact that they did submit questions to us. And hopefully you'll enjoy this episode as well and uh, kind of cover maybe three or four different questions. In the future, we'll come back and do some of those kind of things again. But after this episode, we'll probably go back to uh, doing some little bit more serious hunting. We're, we're coming up to a time in uh, October when a lot of places, bow 
hunting has already been open and uh, I know in Texas we have the managed land permit that allows people to get out and hunt and to take animals on well-managed properties where what they take does not go against their hunting license to the bag limits that we have established here in the state so Oh my goodness, mule deer seasons are about to open and have opened in some areas. Elk seasons are open. Of course, archery season has been open in a lot of different places as well for a long time. And even like you go back into the lowlands of the low country, if you will, of, of South Carolina there, the deer seasons have been open. Uh, I think they started back in August 15th. Had an opportunity to do some of those in the past and had an absolutely great time hunting in, in some really warm weather and doing with some mosquitoes way back when. So uh, one of these days I'd really like to go do one of those hunts again. And I spent some time there and it was just the the camaraderie involved with those hunting camps. The, uh, the, the, the sitting around and telling the stories, particularly with those hunters in that part of the world, is just phenomenal. So Let's get on with some of these questions, and hopefully they'll be a little bit on the entertaining side. Hopefully we can learn a few things. I know that I always learn from questions. You know, quite often I do after dinner talks and, and those kind of things where there's an opportunity to ask questions. And basically what I tell people, if there's going to be time for questions, I say, look, you got a choice here. Either you start asking questions when I bring up the topic and say, okay, it's now time for question and answers, or I'm going to get very personal in questions that I ask you and expect you to answer. So with that being said, let's get on to these and we'll read these. It says, uh, Larry says, I've uh, read your things for a long, long time over the years and a lot of different publications and hunting magazines, watched your TV shows for a long, long time. And I know now that you've been doing the podcast, this is about the second going, I think on the third year, maybe that we're doing the, uh, the weekly podcast. So the, the, the question is, it said, love your podcast. What made you want to do a podcast? And this comes to us from a gentleman here in Texas who I've known for a long, long time. And it was a, a personal thing not very long ago when I was given a program for DSC at one of the chapters. First of all, uh, I appreciated the fact that he brought up the writing. I, I sold my first magazine article, national magazine article, in 1970. That is now 51 years ago. Over the years, I've written for a great variety of publications, both on staff in such places with the uh, now defunct North American Hunter. Uh, was long on staff with the Deer and Deer Hunting. Oh my gosh, the Shooting Times, uh, several of the what used to be the Harris publications, and oh my gracious, I've been on staff with a lot of places, including Sporting Classics, where I'm still now doing some articles. Do about three or four years, three or four a year, I should say. Uh, Scott Mayer is the editor there, and Scott and I go back away, and he's graciously allowed me to, to do some stories for Sporting Classics, where I used to write a column called The Long Hunter. And I've seriously been thinking about doing an, another book, the title of which will somehow or another involve that long hunter situation. So TV shows, you know, uh, well, before we get to those, let me tell you too, that I, I still write a lot. I, I do a numerous blogs every month and they go to places like, um, uh, com. Uh, they're also available through DSC, through a lot of the channels that, that they have, as well as Hornady with their Hornady bullet points. 
uh, Carbon TV. I do a, a dot CarbonTV.com. I do a, a fairly fair number of blogs there and Trijicon Hunt and oh my gosh, the, the list is, is, is rather long, but those are available every month and we're in the process right now of trying to put together a website, which will be LarryWaysoonOutdoors.com. And Miss uh, Stephanie, that does most of my social media, she's in the process of putting that together. And we'll go back and pull a lot of these columns that I've done, or if you will, or blogs, which, <laughs> like I said, I do somewhere between, oh, about 20 of those <laughs> a month and appear in a lot of different places. So a lot of writing still pretty much on staff with, uh, not pretty much am on staff with uh, DSC's Game Trails, which is, uh, I've been doing an article there for every issue of those now going on probably about 20 years when you get right down to it. Write a whitetail column for Texas Fishing Game and you know, there's a bunch of other places. Do a little thing here and there for the Mueller Foundation as well, too, and and uh, really appreciate that. But uh, TV shows, you know, I've been involved in TV since the 1980s, somewhere along and through there, the latter part of the 80s, early part of the 90s, and had a lot of shows, and and uh, including the the most recent one I had was uh, DSC's Trail on the Hunter's Moon which I gave to uh, Blake Barnett. Uh, Blake, for years, was my cameraman, my field producer. Finally, I made him a co-host, and then, oh, about two years ago, I gave him that show to uh, to take over on it for himself. And these days, when it comes to TV, regular TV, I guess you should say, I am doing a bunch of hunts for Trijicon's World of Sports and Field. Those are being done with Safari Classics, who uh, produce Hornady's, uh uh, uh, different shows and do a bunch of other different shows and do a lot of the, uh, the, the as we discussed with Dave Folsom not very long ago, the the messaging, if you will, for DSC. And I uh, do a fantastic job. But like I said, I, I do anywhere from four to six shows a year now with uh, Trijicon's World of Sports and Field. I'm very, very proud to be here. They, of course, are on the Sportsman Channel. Beyond that, I, you've heard me talk a little bit about uh, a show that I do that's called The Sportsman's Life. And that is a weekly, think about that, that is a weekly show that we have on Pride Outdoor Network. It's also available on YouTube. And <clears throat> and actually, with uh, Pride Outdoor Network, it you can go to, uh, if you have a smart TV or or into those kind of things. You can go to Roku, and it's also available on uh, uh, Amazon Fire and a whole bunch of other places. And I do that show with Luke Clayton and Jeff Rice, and it's a uh, it's a whatever happens, <laughs> we're going to show. It's a hunting, fishing, wild game cooking show, wildlife management. As we move into the future, we'll probably have Corey Mason and a couple of guys with DSC on there fairly regularly as well, too kind of giving us an update because the beauty of that weekly TV show is that we can do a weekly update as to what's going on in the world or, or where we've been hunting or where we've been fishing and, you know, some of the conservation things. So all that said, why did I do a podcast? I've always enjoyed and appreciated the time that I got to spend around campfires, particularly late in the evening, coming back maybe with an adult libation or a good strong cup of coffee and sitting around and telling stories and, and learning from people, learning about how they hunt, why they hunt, 
so many different things. Why they fish? You know, what's their favorite meal when it comes to hunting camps? There are just so many different things. And I learned a long time ago that uh, fire kind of brings out the the real person. I think it was J. Frank Dobie, who was the poet laureate for the for Texas and the Southwest. On his fireplace, he had an inscription that said, and I sat down in front of the fire, the world's greatest philosopher. And basically, that's what it does. I think the the uh, the, the evening time when everybody's kind of kicked back or even maybe middle part of the day and that campfire and you're kind of staring into the flames and the embers and watch these little embers go skyward kind of as an offering to the gods of uh, the hunt, uh, not including the true god, but to me those are, are special times and it kind of loosens the tongue and it doesn't take long for people to, to kind of really open up a little bit around the campfire. And, so basically, that's what I'd hope to do with with the podcast, and and kind of recalling the many days and hours, if you heard many hours and nights that I spent sitting around a campfire talking with people, and kind of, I think that was the the, the whole thing behind the uh, by creating the, the the podcast, which we initially called the the Untamed Heritage that Ken Milam and I did together. And then from that, it gravitated to where basically Ken was working on so many different projects and I was working on some as well too. And finally decided that uh, after Ken and I talked, says, Ken, I really appreciate everything you've done, but I think it's time, you know, that we take this podcast and, and, uh, uh you know, that I kind of move forward with it and about myself and a bunch of guests. And of course he was very graciously agreed. So Ken, thank you for helping me get this thing started, but also thank you for uh, stepping aside when you thought it was time to do so to kind of had me established in this avenue of communications and, uh, one of the things I hope to do with this podcast is just to introduce you to some interesting characters, some old friends that I have that who've been in the outdoor field for a long time in terms of of uh, the use of wildlife, but also the the managing side of wildlife and all the things that go along with the the outdoor culture, from the wild game cooking to the actual hunt to when it comes to what we do as conservationists, because hunters, as I mentioned so many times, are the true conservationists. It's we've paid for all this that we, including those who don't hunt, enjoy these days when it comes to wildlife and habitat. So hopefully what I want to do is to just kind of have the atmosphere of, uh, with the podcast to just kind of sitting around the fire and you got your favorite drink, whether that is an, an adult libation, coffee, water, I don't care what it is. Uh, as long as you got, got, you know, some cool evening, kind of early November, a little bit of nip in the air and the fire really kind of feels good. But as I said, that fire has a tendency as you stare into those flames and watch those embers go skyward, that they kind of loosen the tongue and, and open the mind a little bit. So thank you very much for asking about why we started the podcast. And it's a great place to tell stories. And as you're aware now, if you got a question that you'd like to have answered, whether it comes to anything I do with hunting, fishing, cooking, outdoor conservation, whatever, I'd love to be able to field it for you and, and to cover it in, in the podcast that I do. So thank you very much for that particular um, 
uh, question. Going on to the next one, this comes to us from a gentleman in Oklahoma. And, and Oklahoma, I'll tell you, is, is, is very dear to me in a lot of different places. I've hunted there numerous times in the past, taking some really outstanding white-tailed deer. But also uh, spent some time uh, there on the Choctaw Hunting Lodge, which is a huge chunk of country kind of in the south southeast part of Oklahoma, the fantastic place for deer and and turkey and and hopefully we'll be in black bear as well in the future and because they do have a lot of black bear and I assume they'll open that season before too very long so but they also have a lot of wild hogs and it's one of those states where you do not have to have a hunting license to hunt wild hogs. The question as I said comes to us from a gentleman from Oklahoma and it says You've in the past have had, had Luke Clayton on your podcast several times. Truly enjoy listening to the two of you. Y'all sound much like my old hunting partner and me visiting. Hope you'll bring him back on real soon, and I promise you we will. Since obviously Luke likes hunting wild hogs and eating them. What's your opinion of wild hogs? <laughs> oh my gracious. Wild hogs are a curse and a blessing, I guess, in a lot of different ways, and and in a way, I think we're fortunate that we have them, and in another way, we're not so fortunate that we have them. When I grew up in, uh, oh, kind of like right just above the uh, coastal prairies of, of, uh, of the Gulf Coast of Texas, uh, not far from the Colorado River, or not too far from a little place called the Cummins Creek, we didn't have wild hogs. We were in the hog business, so we had brood sows, and we raised our own pigs, and and those pigs put in the feed lot and, and all those kind of good things. So I, I was familiar with hogs in a lot of different ways before we started having wild hogs. And, you know, I can remember years ago when uh, there were not that many hogs scattered about and hunters coming to the brush country of South Texas, they were almost as, as excited about killing a big old long tusked hog as they were trying to kill a pretty good white-tailed deer down there. And over the years, that hog population there has blossomed as it has so many other places. You know, the wild hog was brought across here to North America. It's not an endemic animal, but it was brought across by the Spanish explorers when they first started coming in this country back in the 1500s and early 16 and 1700s. And one of the reasons they brought the wild hog is, or the hog, which came for domesticated, they uh, they brought great numbers of them and they would move those herds of hogs from both the swine herd uh, along with their expedition. And the reason they did is because number one, the hog did very well aboard ship coming over from Spain. and And once they got here, they, well, they ate anything. So what, what the, uh, the the sailors or the, the troops on those ships didn't eat, you know, it was fed to the hogs. And so they could also feed them fish if they caught fish. And uh, they just, you know, hogs are very omnivorous in so many different ways. They'll eat vegetation, eat, eat any, just about anything, to be honest with you, including carrion, including wild animals as well, too. But, uh, so they were very easily brought over and they reproduced really fast. A, a sow will produce uh, two and a half litters a year. And by the time she starts on that half litter on the, on the, for the third litter of, the, of that season, those first gilts, if you will, of the uh, first females, they're already bred and producing, you know, ready to produce pigs of their own. So they're very highly reproductive. They eat just about anything. And so they were brought across so that without a doubt, the explorers would have some kind of food with them. So that's kind of how they got here. And then as the, the settlers started moving west, they brought with them hogs. And 
years ago, I remember my dad talking about uh, when he was a little kid back in oh first parts of uh, the 1900s. Uh, that they would just kind of turn the hogs loose and let them feed on acorns. And then, you know, as the fall came here and got into wintertime when the acorns disappear, they would round those hogs up and, and uh, either ship them to market or in a lot of instances, they would uh, slaughter those hogs, butcher them. And, and that's what they ate, you know, when they didn't have beef or something else to eat during the rest of the year in terms of meat. So they've been here a long, long time and they've kind of become a, a fixture quite frankly they're they're they can be extremely destructive to crops they can tear up a lot of country they're i'm talking about rooting for different grubs bugs tubers you know just about anything so they turn over a lot of, of dirt as well and and uh get into people's yards and uh, unfortunately i guess the, the golfers don't like them because they get onto golf courses and tear those things up there there are several negative things about them and their populations have increased dramatically in the last several years and to the point of where somebody says well you know what, what larry what do you think the range of the wild hog is and basically my statement is almost always the same and uh kind of using a little bit of a vernacular type of thing it's it it's them that's got them and them what's going to have them uh, the wild hog is extremely adaptive. I've seen him up close to, uh, uh well above timberline in Colorado. I've seen him down in the deserts of, of Mexico. I've seen him in the swamps. Uh, they do very well with cold weather. People say, well, don't you think they're going to freeze to death? Well, you know, the wild hog or the hogs that we have here, their ancestry goes back to the, uh, almost to the steppes of Russia where it stayed cold for months on end. Uh, they came originally from, you know, you hear them called Russian or European hogs and the hogs that we have were domesticated from those. And so they're very adaptable in a relatively short period of time in like three generations. Think about that. And that three generations means probably about two, two and a half years. They will adapt like you can't believe in terms of uh, having an undercoat of hair so they can find hair so they can survive the colder weather. And as I said, they, they, they can just about eat anything and, and do, including fawns. Uh, we found over the years that in, in situations where you can't, well, you, maybe you got coyote problem, you maybe you got bobcat problem, whatever problem that you have in terms of removing too many fawns, uh, you, you work on those. If you have wild hogs, chances are they're eating a fair amount of, of, of fawns or calves or whatever the situation might be, even in some of the elk areas. So they can be great predators on our game species, certainly great predators on ground nesting bird eggs such as uh, uh, those of the wild turkey, <clears throat> quail, and uh, almost anything else. That, and you know, you get into some of these situations where now we have more resident ducks and geese down this way. I suspect that down, to, down this way, meaning during the springtime, uh, you know, they're, they're named normally up, used to be up north. Well, now there's food available everywhere from the just below the Arctic Circle to down south and to into Mexico. And those birds really don't have to migrate like they did many years ago when they didn't have the food supply they did. So, you know, I suspect in, in, a, in a marshy situation where you have wild hogs and you have ducks nesting, and now with some of the resident type of Canadian geese, that were Canada geese rather, that we have, uh, 
I suspect they're eating some of those as well too. So they're, they're, they're destructive in a lot of different ways, but there's also a blessing in that, you know, it's provided us something to hunt throughout the year and wild hog meat. And you mentioned Luke Clayton, uh, Luke is, is, as far as I'm concerned, is, is probably one of the premier guys when it comes to having to do anything with wild hogs. I mean, he, he wrote a book called From Kill to Grill that you can go to his website, catfishradio.org, to order copies of. And it's, it is. It's literally from everything from hunting the hog to cleaning the hog to, to how to cook that wild hog including everything in between in that book. I've, I've seen some other books written about hunting wild hogs and dealing with wild hogs, but there's none finer than the one that Luke Clayton wrote here a few years ago. So uh, with that being the case, you know, Luke and I, you're, you're right. Luke loves hunting wild hogs. I do. And we hunt them whenever we have the opportunity. He has an opportunity a little bit more often than I do because he the necessity to do so because of where he lives and, and, uh, the weekly columns that he writes and all those kind of things. So that he does a lot of cooking writing too. And so he needs a constant supply of, of wild hog meat. And that said, they're absolutely delicious to eat and they can be prepared in, in so many different ways. And, and, uh, if, if you're interested in recipes, I mean, there, you know, there's a bunch of places around. You can go look at some Jim Zumbo. Jim Zumbo wrote a book a few years ago about cooking venison, but you can take that venison to a great extent and replace it with wild hog meat. And, uh, with Luke, you know, he's got a bunch of recipes in there. And too, if you listen to, uh, the, uh, oh, Luke and I do this, as I mentioned, the sportsman's life, uh, very frequently we'll have a how to recipe on there as well too, about Luke cooking wild hogs and, and the meat from the wild hogs and, and a few other things as well too. So a great source of meat. And when you get right down to it, great fun to hunt, uh, that's that to me is the positive side of things when it comes to the wild hog is that it is an affordable animal to hunt. You don't need a hunting license. Can you hunt them for free? You know, there's some wildlife management areas scattered around in different states where you can certainly do so. And, and, uh, but also there are hunts available on a lot of private land where hog hunting is, is relatively inexpensive. So it's one of those things that when you go on one of those hunts, you pay for it. You're going to probably shoot a dead gum hog or two that, uh, if you went to the store and bought it, uh, out of a grocery store, the same amount of meat, it would probably cost you more to buy that, that meat out of the grocery store than it would to do the hunt itself. I, I kind of like them. I have a I carry on a love hate affair with, with wild hogs. If they destroy a food plot that I've just planted or those kind of things, I really kind of hate them. But when I get out there and I've got, uh, uh, I started hunting a lot with a pistol again, or handgun again, with the Taurus Raging Hunter in a, in a 44 mag and a 454 capsule. I really kind of like them because to me they're they're fun to hunt. It's something I can do year round, and it can provide food for my family and friends year round as well too. So, my opinion of wild hogs, as I said, a love hate relationship kind of depends on what time of the day you ask me, but. Uh, one thing about them, they're here to stay and you might as well start hunting them because I'll tell you what, if you're not done so, 
they they are a lot of fun to hunt. They can be hunted in so many different ways. Whether you you, you sit and watch bait or watch a water hole or spot and stalk, as we can do in some of the parts of uh, the, the plain states, such as in parts of the Oklahoma and, and uh, Texas and, and California and, and a few other places as well too. Kind of in the southeast where there's open country where you can spot them a long way off and do so. They've got a fantastic sense of smell, as, as you can imagine. Uh, Two, there's a there's a, a a bait put out by uh, not a bait it's a lure if you will put out by TRHP Outdoors that uh, we don't do it very often but we do a limited amount of them and uh, it's kind of a sound estrus kind of thing and what it'll do it'll it'll locate it'll put a bunch of hogs in an area particularly boars if you will or if you've got an area where you're you're baiting and you want to get them to a certain area and that bait may be a, a huge field that your neighbor planted in corn or mallow or soybean or something else that they're destroying by using that lure you can uh, can kind of locate them to a certain area kind of thing which is really helpful and you can learn more about that by going tra hpoutdoors.com if you will the website let's go on to the next one kind of get wordy on some of these things because they're kind of dear to my heart uh, how about uh, how about this one it says i know you've been you, well let me start it this way this comes to us from a gentleman from mississippi he says i know you've done quite a bit of handgun hunting in the past both revolvers and primarily in the past with single stock shots and uh, like the tc contender and encore says, I recently bought a Taurus Raging Hunter, congratulations, sir, in a three fifty seven Remington Mag. Bought it mostly to hunt hogs at close range over bait in the, here in the southeast. What's your opinion of using the three fifty seven Mag on whitetail deer? To me, I've hunted with the three fifty seven a fair amount for hogs in years past, primarily in the past in uh, using a uh, uh, Ruger single action and I love single actions, but also occasionally shoot double action. And as we're moving forward, as I've kind of been playing with this Raging Hunter more and more, which is a double action, I tell you, I really, really like that particular gun in, in, in several different calibers. And I do have one in 357 that uh, actually I am in the process of getting set up and will turn over for a while to Luke Clayton as well, who we just mentioned in uh, dealing with the wild hogs kind of thing. But uh you know, over the years, I've shot them with a lot of different handguns, a lot of different calibers. 357 to me, when it comes to hogs, you know, close range is is a, an excellent gun, particularly if you use the right <laughs> use the right ammo, and you're very proficient with it. And that's the key to hunting deer with them. To me, the 357 mag is probably about a a 50 yard deer gun. After that, you start losing downrange energy fairly rapidly kind of thing. So 357, two things as far as I'm concerned. It is somewhat of an uh, expert's gun and it is a relatively close range gun when it comes to hunting big game, deer if you will, primarily. Um, and it depends on, on the ammo. Now, there there's all kinds of sight systems. Some people have, are blessed with a eyesight to where they can use the open sights or what is commonly referred to as iron sights. Uh, me, uh, I can see better now after having some eye operations compared to what I could years and years ago. And, and so I still can't however see open sights as clearly as what I need to, to accurately shoot, to accurately shoot a pistol. Uh, that sight radius distance between the, uh, the, uh, 
the back sight and the front sight, even with my arm extended somewhat, is uh, I can't see two of the. Uh, I can see one really of the of the three, the being the back sight, front sight, and, and the, uh, uh, the the target that I'm shooting at. If I could see two of those relatively clearly, I'd probably be shooting in both sights a little bit more often. But um, I've learned that with the Trigicon, either with their SRR or what used to be the RMR that they had that I've shot a fair amount of stuff with in their red dot side or the new SRO, which happens to be on, on the handguns that I'm shooting these days. Uh, I, sight acquisition is, is very quick. Uh, the sight is somewhat forgiving in the fact that I can shoot literally with both eyes open that I really couldn't do when I was shooting long eye relief type scopes, if you will. So to me, if you can get an SRO site or an RMR, RMR site from Trigicon, get that thing mounted on, on yours, which is easy to do with that Raging Hunter because it does have a Picatinny rail on it. And that being the case, it's got an integral scope mount on it. As far as I'm concerned, all you need to do is get a base. You got the base, so you kind of got what would be the, the, the rings and, and the site, which they're available to through Trigicon as, as well, very readily available. Uh, ammo, you know, as I said, it's to me for the most part, it is a relatively short range gun, the 357, but it is very deadly at at relatively short ranges. And again, that relatively short range to me means would I shoot one at 75 yards? If I had a good solid rest, knew my gun, which would be the case on regardless of what I shot, but. Uh, and I could put that bullet right behind the shoulder, meaning not trying to drive that bullet through the shoulder, but trying to drive it through the heart and lungs, uh, the vital areas. Absolutely, I'd probably try to shoot a deer out to maybe 75 yards, but that would be kind of my limit of what I'd do. But if I could get it closer than that, certainly that's what I'd do. Now, I've tried a variety of ammo over the years, and I kind of got hooked on Hornady ammo a few years ago because of the accuracy accurate, deadly, dependable, which are the, <laughs> the three cornerstones that I think Hornady was built upon. But uh, with that 357, you know, they, uh, for years I shot a uh, 158 uh, XTP or 158 grain XP, XTP custom hunt, um, just custom load uh, that Hornady does. That's kind of the standard load. Again, that's a 158 grain XTP and, and I've been Truly, truly impressed with the XTP bullet over the years that Horny puts out in, in uh, all the other handguns that I've shot and even used it a little bit years ago in terms of, of a muzzleloader bullet as well too. But that 158 grain is, is one heck of a load when it comes to a 357 uh, Magnum. Now, the recently they came out with the 130 grain Monoflex uh, Hornady Hunter load. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, or a corny handgun hunter. I, I, I've shot this a little bit. It is extremely accurate uh, in, in the Taurus that I shoot. And I've got several th other 357s that I've shot and since that load came out. Uh, I played around with it initially. I thought, well, 130 grain may be a little bit on the light side for some things, but as accurately as this load shoots, again, I would have no qualms of shooting a deer with it out to, say, 50 yards. Again, I would pick my shots to where I'd want to put place that bullet through the heart and lung area rather than try to do it through the shoulder and uh, those kind of things. But uh, I'll tell you what, again, 357, that Raging Hunter that you have, it's ported. It's got the Picatinny rail with the 
Trijicon SRO sat and either one of those two Hornady loads, either the uh, 130 grain monoflex in the uh, Hunter or the 158 XTP in the uh, the custom load that they have, uh, with practice from a good solid rest and knowing your capabilities with that handgun and the, of course the capabilities are there with that particular load, yes, I'd say use it for deer. To start with, you know, I don't know that I stretch it, certainly not stretch it beyond 75 yards, even though you may be capable of taking an animal down quickly and humanely, I still think you need to keep it a little bit closer. So congratulations on the uh, choice of a, of a great handgun and I wish you the very best of luck. And I hope you send me a, a, an email or try to get in touch with me through Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors or here before too very long on our website. And uh, let me know how you do this coming fall, because I got a feeling you're going to get a great opportunity. Mississippi is a great place to hunt whitetail deer, and I think I'm hitting there a little bit later sometime in, in uh, possibly in, in November, if I'm not mistaken, uh, maybe early December, somewhere along through there. I got check the seasons. Got an invite from a dear old friend of mine, Mike Scott. That for years, I worked with him on a product called Trophy Accelerator that. Uh, if you got a food plot, that's what you want to apply to it. I'll tell you, it, it, it'll bring deer in like you can't believe. So uh, let's move on to another one here. Uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. We'll try to make this our last one and get you guys out of here. I, you know, the campfire to me is about a, a, an hour long or so. And if we do a little bit less than an hour, then so much better and, and uh, time to get back out into the field. This comes to us from a gentleman named, whose first name is Samuel, and he's from Wisconsin. Uh, hunted Wisconsin in the past. Uh, matter of fact, we did a uh, uh, one of the competition things that we used to do years ago up there for um, one of the TV networks. So here we go. This goes, I've been hunting deer for over 25 years. I hunt with a bow and hunt only from tree stands. I've heard you talk and write a lot about rifles and handguns, muzzleloaders, and particularly hunting on the ground or from the ground. Did you ever bow hunt? And why do you hunt from the ground rather than trees? Even though you don't address bow hunting in your podcast, I really like it. Well, Samuel, thank you for that last statement in particular. You know, I am often asked in, in person and uh, in question and answer sessions such as this, and so Larry, did you ever bow hunt? My answer is yes, and I, I, I'd say this tongue-in-cheek. Usually my answer is yes, I did, and then I grew up. <laughs> i tell you what, I, I appreciate bow hunters. I really, truly do. Uh, I bow hunted a fair amount many, many years ago. Shot my first deer with a bow a long time ago with the Cedar Arrows, a Ben Pearson, fiberglass bow, which I don't think is ever even in existence anymore with about a 45 pound pull and shot this little spike buck that was uh, facing me and just would not give me any other choice. But back then I practiced a lot. So uh, I, I knew, you know, what I was capable of doing and, and uh, put this animal down very quickly and, and uh, he, he didn't go very far. And then for a while I spent a little bit of time hunting with Pete Sheffley 
with Shetley with PSC. Pete came down and hunted with us in South Texas, and he and I had a ball down there. Uh, great, great gentlemen, and of course, PSC bows have always been a very favorite of mine, not because of, of uh, personally knowing Pete, and but because of the quality that they were, and, and shot several compounds. And I have to tell you too, they were, I had one of the first compounds that came out was the model, uh, the model P, or model T, I think, of the Jennings who kind of brought out the uh, the uh, compound bow a long, long time ago. So yes, I used to hunt a fair amount, did a little bit of writing years ago for uh, Bowhunter Magazine. And uh, back then, I was trying to make a living as, as a writer, among other things, trying to feed my family. And Bowhunter Magazines back then, not necessarily just Bowhunter, but Bow and Air and a bunch of others that were around at that time, they paid about $25 an article. I could write a, a hunting story uh, about using a firearm and they would pay from about 350 to $500 an article back then, particularly the ones with the publications that I wrote for. And uh, it took just as long to write a, a, a bow hunting article as it did a, a gun hunting article. So with me, it was kind of a matter of, of economics too. Plus there was a time that I used the bow really to kind of help feed my growing family at the time. And my wife and I had just been, had been married for a while and, and, uh, had started having her two daughters and, uh, we needed something to supplement. And so my schedule was such that I could hunt a little bit in, in during the bow season. And once we got into the rifle season, I was busy as a wildlife biologist and I had to kind of pick my days that I could go hunting. So yes, you know what? I, I did bow hunt a for years, years ago. I have not shot a deer now with a bow, and uh, I know it's gonna continue to date me, but the last deer I shot with a bow was in 1984. So that's 16, that's that's 38 years ago. Uh, I've shot a, a, a recurve a time or two since then, and, and just at, at targets and those kind of things, just to see that I still could. And, I love the challenge of bow hunting, but as I said, too along that way, I started shooting and hunting with handguns a fair amount, and I got the same thing out of the handguns that I did out of the bow in that I wanted to get as close as I possibly could with a handgun. And that said, it didn't really make a whole lot of difference whether I was shooting a handgun, a rifle, muzzleloader, shotgun, with slugs or whatever. My goal has always been to try to get as close to that animal as possible before pulling the trigger. So I got to do the same thing with the with the uh, with the gun as I I did with the bow, and it was more economical for me to do so. And then, two, I had more opportunities to to hunt, including different places in October. As as a, I was doing a lot of wildlife management work, but I kind of managed to uh, uh, put hunting into that wildlife management programs <laughs> situation thing that I was doing as well too. And I got to hunt you know, in October and, and even September and started hunting the world. And so all of a sudden the, uh, uh, necessity to get more days hunting in with a bow, uh, we're not there anymore. So I, I really appreciate bow, appreciate bow hunters and those that, uh, you know, these days where well, they've become, the bows have become a whole lot different from when I started out with uh, that Ben Pearson fiberglass bow years ago without sights and had to do a lot of practicing and, and you know, the people called it instinctive shooting. Well, no, it wasn't instinctive shooting. It was muscle and eye memory shooting because instinct is if I handed somebody a bow that had never seen a bow, they would know in an arrow, they would know immediately what to do with it. 
So, you know, most people probably use it as a, as a, as something to throw at something or to use it as a uh, pole to try to beat something with, you know, so it's really not instinctive shooting. It is an, an eye practice. I'm muscle practice moving more than anything else. So yes, bow hunting, please keep on bow hunting. We need every hunter out there that we can possibly get regardless of how you hunt. And, you know, if, if you do hunt and you love the outdoors, you've got to be a member of DSC and you can do so by going to www.biggame, that's B-I-G-G-A-M-E dot O-R-G and, and, uh, please become a member. Uh, it's never been more important than it is right now. And, and, you know, we love bow hunters at DSC. We love handgun hunters. We love people who hunt and fish regardless. And even if you don't hunt and fish, you just have a great appreciation for the outdoors with an understanding as to why hunting is so very important when it comes to the conservation, meaning the wise use of habitat and animals moving into the future. And the fact that in the future we will have wildlife Without hunting, as I've said so many times, well, you might have some grasshoppers, maybe a, a few frogs, uh, maybe a coyote or two, and that'd be just about what's left and not much habitat out there anymore. So become a member of DSC. The, there's chapters all over the place, and you can learn more again about those by going to www.biggame.org. Now, whether you're a bow hunter, whether you're a shotgun hunter, whether you're a fisherman, whether you're not a non-hunter who just appreciates the outdoors and you listen to this podcast, I would ask that you please get in touch with us. We'll come back probably in about, oh, maybe three or four months or so and continue on some of these uh, question and answers that we get. To me, they're fun to do, and I, I hope that they'll they'll give you an insight as to kind of, in some instance, where I came from and where I've been and, and to where we're going in the future. Thank you for joining us around the campfire and I look forward to the next opportunity to visit with you. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfires. DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas, H3 Whitetail Solutions, Remington, Texas Wildlife Association, TRHP Outdoors, 